I want to ask you if you'd take your Bibles and open to the Old Testament book of Job. Today we're in Job chapter 4 through chapter 7. We're going to look at several chapters this morning. Don't stress, don't worry, worry about that. We're going, to, we're going to cover a conversation today between one of Job's friends and Job. And I want to talk to you about this sermon subject this morning, when counseling doesn't help. When counseling doesn't help, Job chapter 4 through chapter 7. I've been in a series for some time now, a few weeks, of the book of Job entitled Pieces, the story of Job. Job even says in chapter 4 and verse 20 that those who dwell in houses of clay are beaten to pieces. In other words, those human beings like you and me, that from time to time we feel like we've been beat up, we've been battered, and we've been bruised. And so he talks about how sometimes you feel like your life has been shattered into a million pieces. Now, I told you that the vast majority of this book is a conversation. There's a lot of back and forth between Job and his friends. It's a cycle of conversation. And here in Job chapters 4 through 7, we see a conversation between one of Job's friends and Job. After Job's conversation... Uh, after Job's prayer in chapter 3, Job's friends begin to reply, and Eliphaz is the first one to speak. Most scholars believe that Eliphaz was probably the oldest, and therefore he was considered the wisest, the most esteemed, and so he was the one to talk first. And so here's how this works. Chapter 4 and chapter 5 is when Eliphaz responds to Job's prayer in chapter 3. Chapter 6 and chapter 7 is when Job responds to what Eliphaz has to say. And so let's look at Job chapter 4 through 7. We're going to read some selected scriptures to try to get the idea of what's happening here in the text. Chapter 4, let's begin reading verses 1 through 11. Then Eliphaz the Temanite answered and said, If one ventures a word with you, will you be impatient? Yet who can keep from speaking? Behold, you've instructed many, and you've strengthened weak hands. Your words have upheld him who was stumbling. You've made uh, firm the feeble knees. But now it's come to you, and you're impatient. It touches you, and you are dismayed. Is not your fear of God your confidence and the integrity of your ways your hope? Remember, who that was innocent ever perished? Or where were the upright cut off? As I have seen, those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. By the breath of God they perish, and by the blast of his anger they are consumed. The roar of the lion, the voice of the fierce lion, the teeth of the young lions are broken. The strong lion perishes for lack of prey, and the cubs of the lioness are scattered. Now look in chapter 5. We'll look at verses 8 through 9 of chapter 5. Eliphaz continues, As for me... I would seek God. Job, this is my advice to you. To God, I would commit my cause. Who does great things, unsearchable things, marvelous things without number. Now look at verse 17 and 18 right there in in chapter 5. Eliphaz continues. Behold, blessed is the one whom God reproves. Therefore, despise not the discipline of the Almighty, for he wounds, but he binds up. He shatters, but his hands heal. That's that. That's a little bit about what Eliphaz tells Job. And then in chapters 6 through 7, Job responds to his friend. Begins in verse 1 and 2 of chapter 6. Job answered and said, Oh, that my vexation were weighed and my calamity laid in the balance. For then it would be heavier than the sands of the sea. Therefore, my words have been rash. Chapter 6 and verse 14, Job responds to Eliphaz. He who withholds kindness from a friend forsakes the fear of the Almighty. In chapter 7, verse 7 through 10, 
Job replies, remember that my life is breath. My eye will never again see good. In other words, of all the trouble that he'd been through, he feels like he'll never see anything good again. The eye of him who sees me will behold me no more. While your eyes are on me, I shall be gone. As the clouds fade and vanish, so he who goes down to Sheol does not come up. He returns no more to his house, nor does this place know him anymore. And then he concludes in verse 21, verse 20 and 21, of chapter 7. As he talks to God, if I sin, what do I do to you, you watcher of mankind? Why have you made me your mark? Why have I become a burden to you? Why do you not pardon my transgression and take away my iniquity? Remember this morning the powers and the perfect word of God. Would you join me as we pray? Father, thank you for your word. And I pray now the Holy Spirit of God would speak in this moment and this time through your perfect word and transform us, change us from the inside out, conform us into the image of Christ. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. It was the 16th century. William Tyndale translated the Bible into English. He translated the Bible from its original Greek and Hebrew into English, but in the 1500s, The Church of England refused to allow the masses to have the Bible in their own language. In fact, they wanted to keep the knowledge, they wanted to keep the Bible in their own translation so that the masses couldn't read it. And so, William Tyndale's translation was banned in England. Henry VIII declared William Tyndale an enemy of the state. And so, in the early 1500s, Tyndale fled from England to Belgium where he lived for quite some time. While in Belgium in 1535, about a decade after he fled there, he met a young man named Henry Phillips. Henry Phillips and William Tyndale became very good friends. Phillips simply told Tyndale he wanted to learn more about the Bible, he wanted to grow in his relationship with Christ, and he wanted to become a better follower of Jesus. And so Tyndale took Henry Phillips under his wing and began to train him and show him the ways of the Word and the Lord. Then one night, As they were out to dinner, they were coming back to the inn where they were staying in Belgium. Henry Phillips was actually walking in front of William Tyndale. But as they walked to the entrance of the inn, Phillips took a step back and allowed William Tyndale to go in first. What Tyndale later realized was that there were two guards of the Royal Army of England there waiting to seize him, that his friend Henry Phillips had sold him out. And these guards grabbed William Tyndale and took him and put him in captivity in a dungeon in a castle in Belgium. He was in prison for 16 months. Even while in prison, several people were converted converted to faith in Jesus Christ. The guard was converted to faith. Other officers were converted to faith. The guard's daughter placed her faith and trust in Jesus Christ. William Tyndale, because of his crime against the church and the state, was sentenced to death. What was his crime? He translated the Bible and wanted to have the Bible in the English language. He was sentenced to death. 16 months, he was led to his execution. Bible, the, the story goes that William Tyndale was first given an opportunity to say some last words. And his prayer was, may God open the eyes of the king of England, Henry VIII. He was strangled to death and then burned on the stake. It was three years later that Henry, Henry VIII allowed the Bible to be passed out to the masses in English and William Tyndale's prayer was answered. 
Now think back to that moment when Tyndale and Phillips walk into the inn together. Think about that moment of betrayal. Have you ever been betrayed? Have you ever felt like your, your closest ally becomes your enemy? Have you ever felt like you've been stabbed in the back? That's where we find Job. Job had lost everything. In the first chapter, we see how everything had been taken from Job. He lost his wealth, material possessions. He lost 10 children. His wife said, curse God and die. And he'd been afflicted with, with a severe, awful sickness. As you read the description of the Bible, it is absolutely painful, disgusting disease. And now, as if he thinks it can't get any worse, Job's friends come and they begin to give him advice. And it's another tool the enemy uses to beat up and to batter Job. Here, Job pours his heart out in chapter 3. And then it begins a conversation in chapters 4 through 7 of the friends of Job. Job's friends answer, Job feels betrayed. The reality is that misguided counsel can come from well-meaning sources. I want to say that again. Misguided counsel can come from well-meaning friends. Sometimes there are people that God puts in your life and they're here to encourage you. And other times those that have encouraged you will actually make the problem even worse. Now, remember chapters 4 through 37 is a poetic back and forth. There's a lot of poetry here. There's a lot of tough stuff that's difficult and tough to understand. In fact, if it was poetry written originally in English, it'd be hard for us to understand some of the pictures and some of the images, but it's Hebrew poetry. And so it's very difficult to understand everything that's going on, but a lot of this is a conversation. Job speaks, then his friends speak, and then Job speaks, and Job offers explanations, and his friends offer accusations, and it's this big conversation. And so that's why we can cover chapters 4 through 7 today. Next week, we'll probably look at a larger section, chapter 8 through 14, as Job's friends go back and forth in this conversation. So let's dive in and look to see what we learn in chapters 4 through 7 when counseling doesn't help. I want to give you a few tips when you're talking to someone in pain, when you're talking to someone that's suffering. First of all, notice this. There's value in silence. There's value in silence. A couple chapters back, turn back just a couple of chapters to chapter 2. And in verses 11 through 13, we're first introduced to Job's friends. The first time his friends are mentioned is in chapter 2. Verses 11 through 13. They heard of Job's struggle and they heard of his problems. And you know what they did? They were in different places. They weren't in the land of us. But they got together and they formed their own bereavement committee. And they decided that they were going to go help their friend Job. Job was in sorrow and suffering, in pain and heartache. And so they were going to come help him. And I, I want to give them credit. They took initiative. Job didn't have to put it out on Facebook. Hey, man, life's hard right now. I could really use a friend. He didn't put a text group in and send it out to Bildad and Zophar and Eliphaz. No, he didn't even have to call them and say, I need you here, come. They took initiative to come and to be with Job in his time of sorrow. And look at what the Bible tells us in chapter 2 and verse 11 about Job's friends. Job's three friends heard of all the evil that had come upon him. And they each came from his own place, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuite, and Zophar the Namathite. They made an appointment together to come show him sympathy and to comfort him. So they began to share in his pain. Now look at chapter 2 and verse 12. And when they saw him from a distance, they didn't recognize him. And they raised their voices and wept. And they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads toward heaven. 
Job's condition, his physical condition, his disease was so bad that when his friends showed up, they didn't even recognize Job. And then they began to identify with him in his suffering. What did they do? They tore their robes, a sign of grief and sorrow. They sprinkled dust on their head towards the heavens, ashes and dust, a sign of sorrow and grief. And so what are they doing? They are identifying with Job in the midst of his pain and heartache. Then beyond that, look at verse 13. Chapter 2, and they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights. And no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. You see that? No one spoke a word to him. For seven days and seven nights, they sat on the ground and didn't speak. This is how we know that Job's friends were not Baptists. They were quiet for seven days days. Think about this and get the picture in your mind. Job is suffering in agony all by himself. And his friends decide they're going to come and they're going to comfort him. And literally for seven days, no one said a word. Then Job breaks the silence in chapter three and he begins to cry out to God. We saw that last week. God, I don't understand. God, I don't get it. Why is this happening to me? I've been faithful to you. Well, here his friends come. Seven days and seven nights, sitting with Job in ashes. You know, the Bible tells us in Romans chapter 12 and verse 15 that we ought to rejoice with those who rejoice. We ought to weep with those who weep. Can, can we be honest for a minute? Sometimes it's really hard to rejoice with those who rejoice. You know what? The measure of a good friendship is to ask yourself this question. How often do you rejoice when your friends su- succeed? How often do you rejoice when your friends rejoice? Or how often do you weep when they weep? Does your heart break when they walk through sorrow and struggles and, and difficulties? Do you weep with those who weep? Can I, can I give you a couple of lessons? When it comes to identifying with those that are in pain, first of all, here's a lesson. Don't act like you have all the answers. You haven't been there. Don't act like you've got all the solutions for what your friend is going through, for what somebody is facing. You never know what someone is going through unless you've gone through it yourself. Those that are in the midst of heartache and struggle and pain, those in the midst of heartbreak, they don't need correction. They need connection. They need love. They need support. They need encouragement. So first of all, don't pretend like you have all the answers. Secondly, sometimes it's enough just to sit there and be with somebody. Sometimes it's enough simply to be present. I can remember when I served as pastor at Cross Point Baptist Church in Millington, Tennessee. It was a Tuesday. I remember it was a study day because rarely am I interrupted on my study days, but my secretary buzzed me and asked me to come see her. And there was a family in our church that had just called. It's actually some friends of that family who called. And they told us that, that over the night, they had suddenly and unexpectedly lost their six-month-old baby boy. That night, they put him to bed, a healthy, happy six-month-old. And when they came in to get him out of the crib in the morning, he was blue and he was cold. He was gone. What do you say in a moment like that? 
I packed up, I left my study, I went to their home, and I began, so I was driving, I said, Lord, I don't know what to say. Lord, I don't know what to do. And it was just, God spoke to me and said, you don't have to say or do anything, just be there. Sometimes it is not what you say that people will remember, they'll just remember that you were there. And here, Job's friends just sit and be. They sit there with him. Well, then chapter four and chapter five, after Job prays, Eliphaz opens his mouth and things take a wrong turn. So first of all, there's value in silence. Secondly, think before you speak. This is a great lesson for all of us at any time, not just when people are walking through tragedy and difficulty. Think before you speak. So Job broke his silence in chapter three. So Eliphaz, Bildad, Zophar, they feel like it's their turn. If Job can speak and cry out to God, we can speak to Job and correct him and tell him all the things that he's done wrong. So Job speaks and now it's his friend's turn. Really, there's a lot between chapters four and 37 I wish I could skip. If you, if you study some pastors, a lot of pastors that preach through the book of Job, they'll do a lot in the beginning, they'll do a lot at the end, but there's very little in the middle because it's a conversation back and forth. And, and I don't want to skip it because it's hard. I want to skip it because these friends give you some really bad examples of what to do in difficult times. There's some really bad examples here of how to be a friend in the midst of, of difficulty of how to love somebody that's walking through heartache. They don't show you what you ought to do. They show you what you ought not to do in the midst of heartache and struggle. But we're going to study it. We're going to walk through it. And we're going to learn from the word of God. And, and, and Eliphaz begins innocently enough. L- listen to how he begins his conversation with Job. Chapter 4 and verse 1. What does he say? If one ventures a word with you, will you be impatient? In other words, Job, can I say something? He's asking permission. Job, can I, can I tell you something? You know, anybody that, that walks up to you and says something like this, I don't mean to offend you, but do you know what that means? They're going to offend you, right? I don't mean to offend you, but this is what's happening. This is what Eliphaz is saying. Job, could I venture a word? Would you let me speak? You've prayed. You've poured out your heart. Now let me give you some advice. Let me speak. That's what's, that's what's happening here. Don't get upset, Job. And here's what he says. Your words have been a comfort to others, so now let my words comfort you. That's what he says in verses 3 and 4. Chapter 4, verse 3 and 4. Behold, you've instructed many. You've strengthened weak hands. Your words have upheld him who's stumbling. You've made firm the feeble knees. Job, you've encouraged many people through the years. I've been one of those people, so now let me encourage you. The Bible tells us here, a word spoken at the right time is encouraging and uplifting and can bring strength. But words spoken at the wrong time can bring heartache and heartbreak. And so chapter 4 through chapter 5, Eliphaz begins to speak. He begins right, but he ends up wrong. And he makes several key critical mistakes when you're trying to comfort somebody in a difficult place. First of all, notice improper accusations. In chapter 4 and chapter 5, Eliphaz begins with a compliment, but this was really only a way to get to his point. All he wanted to say was, Job, you're a good guy, but I'm going to tell you about all the things you've done wrong. 
Job, you're a good guy, but I'm going to tell you about all the ways you've messed up. That's what he's doing. Look, look at verse 5 and 6. What does he say? But now it's come to you and you are impatient. It touches you and you're dismayed. Is not your fear of God, your confidence, the integrity of your ways, your hope? What's he saying? Job, you've encouraged others in their difficulty, but now that difficulties come your way, you're being impatient. Now that struggles come your way, you don't know how to handle it. In other words, Job, you need to practice what you preach. You've been able to encourage others. You need to be able to encourage yourself or allow others to encourage you. And then, as if that is not enough, in chapter 5, Eliphaz kind of says something like this, Job, if I were going through what you were going through, let me tell you how I would respond. Chapter 5, begin reading with me in verse 8, and listen to what Eliphaz says to Job. Job, here's how I would respond if I faced what you're facing. As for me, I would seek God, and to God I would commit my cause. Who does great things, unsearchable, marvelous things without number. He gives rain on the earth and sends waters on the fields. And he sets on high those who are lowly and those who are mourn and lifted up to safety. He frustrates the devices of the crafty so their hands achieve no success. He catches the wise in their own craftiness and schemes of the wily are brought to a quick end. Then skip to verse 17 and 18. Behold, blessed is the one whom God reproves. Therefore, despise not the discipline of the Almighty, for he wounds, but he binds up. He shatters, and his hands heal. What a great little sermon from Eliphaz. Isn't that just what Job needed at that time? Job, I've got, uh, I've got some truth for you. I've got a word for you, man. This is a great sermon, right? Here's what he's saying. Job, first of all, the reason that you're suffering is because you've sinned. Quit trying to act like you are a man of integrity. We know that you've messed up. Secondly, let me tell you how I would respond in a situation just like this. That's a lovely little sermon, but it is not at all what Job needed. Listen, what, what Eliphaz says here is not untrue. It is unkind. It's not that what he's saying is wrong. It just comes at the wrong time. And listen, if God is in it, God is going to give you the right thing to say at the right time. It's about topic and truth and timing when it comes to the Lord. And so first of all, we see improper accusations. Here's another mistake, incorrect assumptions. We see this in chapter 4, chapter 5, chapter 6. Here's the basic premise of all of Job's friends, Zophar, Bildad, and Eliphaz. Their basic premise, the topic of every one of their sermons is this. Job, we know that only the wicked suffer. The righteous receive blessing. So if you're suffering, it's because you've done something wrong. Job, do right and things go well. Do wrong, receive judgment. This is what all three of his friends say, and all three of his friends are wrong, because the Bible even makes it clear that Job is not suffering because of his own sin. He is suffering under the providential care of Almighty God. And so, look at what he says in verse 8 of chapter 4. As I've seen, those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. What's he saying? Eliphaz is saying to Job, here's what's happening, Job. You are reaping what you've sown. The reason that you are facing struggle and heartache and difficulty is because you have sinned and now you're reaping what you've sown. And judgment comes 
Judgment may come like the farmer that waits for the harvest. Judgment may come slowly. Or, he says, judgment could come quickly, verses 9 through 11. By the breath of God, they perish. The blast of his anger, they're consumed like a lion. Look at this. The roar of the lion, the fierce lion. Teeth of the young lion are broken. The strong lion perishes for lack of prey. And the cubs of the lioness are scattered. Job, God's judgment comes Sometimes it comes slowly, sometimes it comes swiftly, but what you're facing right now is the judgment of God. And then Eliphaz explains to Job where he got his sermon. In chapter 4, verses 12 through 17, I want you to see this in the text. Chapter 4, verses 12 through 17, Job hears from Eliphaz. Eliphaz explains how he came up with this. Verse 12, begin reading. Now a word was brought to me stealthily. My ear received the whisper of it. Amid thoughts from visions of the night when deep sleep falls on men, dread came upon me and trembling, which made all my bones shake. A spirit glided past my face. The hair of my flesh stood up. It stood still, but I could not discern its appearance. A form was before my eyes. There was silence, and then I heard a voice. Can mortal man be in the right before God? Can a man be pure before his maker? Here's the source of the sermon that Eliphaz is speaking to Job. What's the source of it? A dream that he had, a spirit that he saw. Listen to how he describes it. I was in my bed when when everyone is in a deep sleep. I had this dream and there's a a spirit that comes stealthily by and it was weird, it was awkward and and the hairs on my arms stood up. The hairs on the back of my neck stood up and I I couldn't really see or imagine what was going on. But this is what it said. And can I tell you something as you read this encounter that Eliphaz had? It sounds a whole lot more like demonic activity than angelic activity. Read what happens. It sounds a whole lot more like, like someone experiencing demonic activity. Because in the Bible, when you see those that have encounters with angels... What you see is they fall on their face as dead before the Lord. The angel announces the message from the Lord. Eliphaz describes some mystical experience that he can't quite explain. Maybe he ate a bad burrito before dinner and has a dream. And now he wants to tell Job everything that Job needs to hear. This is the source of Eliphaz's sermon. Can I just warn you this morning? You better be very careful when you walk up to someone and say, God told me. Listen, we have a tendency to blame God for a lot of stuff that's not his fault. We have a tendency to say God said when God hasn't spoken at all. You be very careful when you come up to somebody and say, God told me, here's how you're supposed to act. God told me, this is what you're supposed to do. God told me, this is how you should respond. If God can speak to you about me, God can speak to me about me. The same Holy Spirit dwells in me. I don't mean to say that we ought to encourage others based on the impressions that we get from the Holy Spirit of God. But even as your pastor, I try to be very, very careful saying, God told me this or that. I've tried as I lead to say something like this, as best as I can discern the leadership of the Holy Spirit in my life, I believe this is what God is calling us to do. And so anytime someone comes up to you with a word from God for you, be careful, be discerning, and lay it up against the Scripture. Here's his point. Can a mortal man be right before God? Can a man be pure before his maker? In other words, Job, no one is perfect. If you would just confess your sin, 
Job, you're just like the rest of us. You're a sinner too. If you'd just confess, then things would get better. Fess up and move on. But the Bible tells us there's a problem with that. Job chapter 1 and verse 22. What does it say? In all of this, Job did not charge God with wrong. Job did not sin. Job did not charge God with wrong. Job was not suffering because of his sin. That was the, the assumption of Eliphaz. Next, notice this inaccurate assessment. So Eliphaz, improper accusations, incorrect assumptions, inaccurate assessment. We see this in chapter 5. The bulk of chapter 5 here shows us something. Eliphaz has a problem evaluating himself, and he has a problem evaluating his friend Job. He's got a self-righteousness problem. He accuses Job. He excuses himself. In other words, he says, Job, I want you to know, if this had happened to me, this is how I would have responded. Look at chapter 5, verse 6 and 7. What does he say? Job, affliction doesn't come from the dust. Trouble doesn't sprout from the ground. But man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward. You know what he means? When he says affliction doesn't come from the dust and trouble doesn't grow up from the ground, your problems don't come from nowhere. They come because of your sin, and God is judging you because of something you've done. You are reaping what you have sown. Interesting. He means trouble doesn't come from nowhere. Your problems are a natural result of your sin. Listen to his hypocrisy. What does he say? Listen to what he says. As for me... I would seek God. As for me, I would commit my cause to the Lord. Eliphaz is telling Job, Job, if I was going through what you were going through, this is how I would react. Don't you just love someone who's an expert on your problems? Don't you just love somebody who can tell you in the midst of the mess and the chaos and the problems that you're experiencing in life, hey, this is what you need to do. And they've never walked a mile in your shoes. No one can tell you how to handle what you're going through. You know how to handle what you're going through in your relationship with the Lord. And so don't you dare let somebody come who's never walked through sorrow or pain like you've experienced come and say, this is what I would do if I were you. That's not comforting and encouraging. And so if you're a friend and you want to support someone, why don't you try to just give your love and encouragement to them? Don't try to give every answer to every problem or situation. Why don't you just try to lift them up and encourage them? Think before you speak. First of all, there's value in silence. Secondly, think before you speak. Number three, learn to sympathize with others. Learn to sympathize with others. We see this in chapters 6 through seven. This is Job's response to Eliphaz's sermon. A lot of it's a back and forth, okay? This happens multiple times in multiple cycles with three friends, and there's a fourth friend that comes later at the end. And so as Eliphaz speaks in four through five, Job now responds in chapter six through seven. Job's response, hey, You've got to learn to sympathize. You've got to learn to listen. Look at what he says in chapter 6 and verse 14 and 15. I love how Job responds to Eliphaz here. He who withholds kindness from a friend forsakes the fear of the Almighty. My brothers are treacherous as a torrent bed, as torrential streams that pass away. What's he saying? Look at the analogy, the, the picture that Job gives here. He says, your words have cut me like a, like a stream that cuts through the desert sand. It leaves this, this huge gash in the sand. 
like a torrential downpour that, that cuts through the earth. Your words have cut me deep in the heart. And then in verse 14, I love what he says. He who withholds kindness from a friend forsakes the fear of the Almighty. In other words, here I am, Eliphaz, in sorrow and suffering. And you've forsaken me. And you've forsaken me. And also the fear of the Almighty. In other words, the way that you're dealing with me shows that you don't even love the Lord or follow him like you say you do. Job addresses his remarks in chapter 7 and verse 11. And here's, here's what he says. I will speak in my anguish, in the anguish of my spirit. I will complain in the bitterness of my soul. And then he speaks honestly. Here in chapter 7, Job does not hold back. He speaks honestly about his sin. He speaks honestly about his heartache. He speaks honestly about his struggle. Job's not trying to say, I'm a perfect man and I've never sinned. What he's trying to say is, although I'm a sinner, it was not sin that directly brought about this suffering. And he's right. All of this is under God's providential care. God is not punishing Job because of Job's disobedience or unfaithfulness. Throughout the text of this book, God affirms Job's faithfulness. And so what does he say? Well, notice what he says in chapter 7 and verse 20 through 21. If I sin, what would I do to you, you watcher of mankind? Now, I want you to circle these words in your Bible. Three times we see the word why. Why have you made me your mark? Why have I become a burden to you? Why do you not pardon my transgression and take away my iniquity? Do you see that? For now I shall lie in the earth, but you will seek me, but I shall not be. Job is saying, I'm basically going to be dead. This is going to kill me. And God, I don't understand. Do you see that question there? Why have you made me your mark? God, why did I become a target for your judgment? Why did I become a target for your sorrow? Lord, what am I doing to you? Why have I become a burden? Why don't you pardon me and take away? Look, if there's sin in my life that caused this, pardon me and take it away. But I don't believe there is. Do you see those questions? Why, why, why? I've told you multiple times and we'll come back to it over and over again. God is not afraid of your questions. It's not a sin to ask why. Just know where to take your questions. Take them to the Lord. God's not afraid of your questions. But we ought not to pretend like he owes us an answer. We need to learn how to sympathize with others. That's what Job says to Eliphaz. You've got to learn how to sympathize with other people. Maybe you've heard the name Amy Carmichael. If you've never read anything on Amy Carmichael, I'd encourage you to grab something that tells you a little bit about her story. She was a missionary in India for many, many decades. Amy Carmichael even wrote about a time when she was younger. She had a very difficult time trying to figure out why the Lord didn't answer her prayer. She was born with brown eyes. She lived in England, and almost all of her friends had blue eyes. So as a little girl, she prayed that the Lord would give her blue eyes instead of brown eyes. God didn't answer that prayer. She kept her brown eyes, and she couldn't understand why the Lord wouldn't answer her prayer and give her blue eyes like her friends. It wasn't for a couple of decades that she realized when she became a missionary to India that she realized that her brown eyes instead of blue eyes actually helped her connect with the people of India even better. She said even an unanswered prayer was actually God's providence working in her life. She never came home 
living in India for decades, never came home to the United States, made India her home, and did everything she could to sacrifice to take the gospel to the people of India. You know, the last 20 years of her life, she was sick and bedridden. For 20 years, she had a fall and had nerve damage, and so for 20 years, she was basically an invalid in bed. Her mind worked great, but she was sick. You know what one of the things that she said about that moment is, a wise master never wastes his servant's time. In other words, I trust that God is a wise master, and if he wants me suffering and sickness in bed, it's not a waste. God is at work. Do you know the last 20 years of her life when she was bedridden, she wrote 47 books. 47 books in 20 years writing there from her bed that communicates worldwide even to this day. Her writings influenced people like Jim and Elizabeth Elliot who went to share the gospel with the Aka Indians. Jim and uh, Jim Elliot and his friends gave their life on the sands of the shore to take the gospel to the Aka Indians. Amy Carmichael was an inspiration to them. Here's something else she said, and I want you to hear this. When it comes to people dealing with those in pain, this is what she said. I've noticed that when the one who has not suffered draws near to the one in pain, there is rarely much power to help. Okay, can I say that again? I want you to hear this. This is one who walked through suffering her own. She said, I've noticed that when the one, that the one, one who's not suffered draws near to the one in pain, there's rarely much power to help. In other words, looking at Job, Eliphaz, Zophar, Bildad, later, Elihu, guess what? They can't help. They can't bring comfort. They don't know what Job's going through. And so when counseling doesn't help, where do you go? You go to the counselor. The Bible tells us the Lord Jesus Christ is identified with our pain, our sorrow, our sickness, and our suffering. You know what the Bible tells us in Isaiah 53, that he, he took upon himself the burdens that we bear in this life? You know what the Bible tells us in Hebrews? We don't have a high priest who's off in the heavens untouched by our pain. We have a high priest who's walked through everything that we'll ever walk through. There's not a sorrow you face that Jesus Christ cannot identify with. There's not a struggle that you face that Jesus Christ cannot help you through. There's not a problem you encounter where he can't bear you up. So when you run to your friends and when you run to Facebook and when you run to all the books and when you run to your family and nothing else helps, run to Jesus Christ first. Trust in him. And what you'll find is there's one who knows, there's one who sympathizes, there's one who understands. We have a high priest who can identify with us because he has walked through what you're walking through. Has there ever been a time in your life where you've placed your faith and trust in him? Where you've repented of your sins and trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible says that all of us have sinned and we're separated from God as a result of sin. That what we deserve is judgment and death. But Christ came. The Bible says God sent his son even while we were sinners. And Jesus Christ lived a perfect sinless life. He took the judgment that we deserve, death, upon himself. And he died on the cross for your sin and for my sin. 
The Bible says he was buried and he rose again on the third day. He conquered death, hell, the grave, and all of his enemies. And now the Bible says he's ascended to heaven. He's seated at the right hand of God the Father, offering salvation to all who will repent and believe and trust in him. Has there ever been a time in your life where you've trusted in Jesus Christ for salvation? Right now in this place, you can trust him. Wherever you're watching, online, across this community and around the country, you can trust him. We talk to God through prayer. It's not a mystical, magical language. It's just a simple conversation. You can pray something like this. God, I know that I'm a sinner and I know I need a savior. I believe the savior is Jesus. I repent of my sin and I place my faith in Christ. Come into my life. I want to follow you. Have you ever done that? Have you ever taken all of your sorrow, all of your suffering, all of your problems, all of your trust, and all of your faith and brought it to the Lord Jesus Christ? Take your burdens to the Lord and leave them there.